Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is John Keeley and this is the podcast extension for ROI Show 513. Our noted guest for today's show is Emily Van Wardhuizen, co-director of the collections at the Rock Island Carpalus Manuscript Museum, who will be talking to us about the history of the of the Chinese in 19th century uh, China and the United States. The history buffs for today's show are going to be Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. Ed, why don't you start it off? Start us off. Thanks, John. Um, it's been a long time since I've been to the museum, um, but the time that I was there, uh, they had some like personal letters and that sort of thing um, that were original. And then there were also some other things that um, were originals, but they were not like the copy. That, mm-hmm. and, t- and apparently that's typical, mm-hmm. is that when important things are signed, we have the main one where all the photographs are taken, mm-hmm. but then there's also a certain number of also original, but copies mm-hmm. of that. Um, what do you have now? Do you have some of both? Uh, well, when you say original letters, we actually do have uh, letters involving the construction of the uh, Christian Scientist Temple, um, so like from 1914 and on, um, and some actually feature prominent member uh, members of Rock Island's history uh, writing them. So we have uh, letters for, to and from the um, architect William C. Jones, and then the secretary of the building committee, Louis Cohn. Um, there's no letters um, uh, directly mentioning uh, this individual, but we have letters from the... I'm sorry, it's been a very long day. Um, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, but we... Sorry, it's uh, Frederick Dankman. We don't have any letters specifically from him, uh, but he is mentioned several times. I almost said Vanderbilt, different. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> money's money. What the heck? Yeah, yeah so right. there we go. He doesn't care who has. And our listeners yeah. would believe you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't worry about it, Rick. <laughs> My turn, eh? Okay. Yeah, he is his mate. What uh, you mentioned that the documents of Chinese uh, American interaction, if you will, uh, history run the uh, 19th and into the 20th century. What do you have in the 20th century in terms of documents from uh, uh, China? Um, we do have some documents um, about, I can't remember specific uh, summary off the top of my head, but uh, their interactions with the UN and... Uh, sure. Things yeah. like that. Okay. Um, let's take a step back to the uh, the radio show. You did, I thought, a marvelous job. Thank you. Of showing that, you know what, we have some artifacts here, but this is a topic that is as vast as the century itself. Mm-hmm. So you, as someone who works with other people in trying to present this information into a direction that uh, visitors can get or have discussions mm-hmm. with others... Um, do you guys as a committee get together and say like, okay, these are the steps we normally go through from the beginning and then expand, or is it every project's, you know, every findings got a different angle? I mean, because I've, we're historians here Mm -hmm. and to try and 
put down either in paper or in presentation mm-hmm. uh, ideas or past events can be very daunting. Mm-hmm. So if I understand your question right, the exhibits uh, come to us for the most part kind of prepackaged as in uh, another branch, it was presumably it was the California branch uh, when it was around, uh, created the labels. That said, though, uh, in our case, um, we also tried to supplement our exhibit, especially we did with this one. My director, uh, Margie Kane, and Ann Richards, our um, mini-museum program coordinator, uh, really went above and beyond um, in creating like extra programming and also some extra, I guess, findings and research to go along with this exhibit because it's smaller in terms of documents than it usually is. So I know um, they did a little research about the language, also uh, traditional uh, Chinese uh, formal wear, stuff like that. At one point, I think they were talking about even duplicating um, making a dress or something. Um, both of them are very talented at sewing. I don't think that happened, but my point is they're very dedicated in trying to make things interesting and also more interactive and, I guess, relatable, if that makes sense. Ed? Um, yeah, I want to go back to the building. Um, I don't, I don't, do. It's my know best. I want to ask oh, you're going to send me over, are you? Well, the building alone is worth yeah, um, going. It's an important topic, but mm-hmm. the building is worth... Walking through, it's just yeah. And I, um, I don't think I've ever been in a any building where once used as a church or whatever, where the sanctuary was on the second floor. Mm-hmm. But it's a really interesting space. Can you tell us a little more about it? Yeah. Um. You uh, just mentioned that you haven't been to a place where it's on the second floor. This is just from the one time I was able to go to another uh, sister car. Uh, Carpalist Museum, but it was also Christian Scientist Temple. It's not the current one in St. Louis because this one experienced a fire, uh, but I was there a few months before then, and it was also a split-level um, sanctuary on top. Um, from what I can tell, uh, that seems to be the way that most Christian Scientist temples, when they were at the point of popularity where they could still do temples, uh, not so much nowadays, but the it would be on top, and then there's the main lobby area, and then uh, the basement, which um, every now and then I get people who used to actually go to this church come through the door, and they told me that was used for meeting spaces. But as for up top, it's, um, it is grand but simple, if that makes sense. It goes back to that preferred architectural style, not having anything too distracting. Like our windows up in the sanctuary, you'll notice that they are geometric based, uh, very soft, immune colors. They are not thematic or narrative like other Christian denominations uh, have their stained glass windows. And once again, that's by design, very deliberate. And if you drop a marble on the floor, you only have to look one place, and that's down in front, because that floor (laughs) is not level. No, it is not. It uh, is meant to kind of swoop down. In fact, so before fire codes, this thing, we could uh, it's at 800 people. Now we say 74, 40, but the point is it's massive. And they did that slope level kind of to make, I mean, it's still big, but it definitely gives it a grand appearance. Okay. Rick, uh, how much of the building is being used? Because I, my wife is one of the founding members of the Quad City Flutes Unlimited. We were looking to do mm-hmm a concert mm-hmm. there because we just love the mm-hmm. sanctuary. But I was wondering how much of that 
building is being mm-hmm. utilized. So I'm so glad you asked. So the first floor is mostly the museum. I mean, technically the second floor be- is as well because we always offer when people come in if they like to see upstairs. And plus we have tours on the side. But uh, that sanctuary space is actually available for rent. And we have weddings there. Our most events that we do, but we have had lots of musical events as well. Um, because if you ever go in and you go upstairs with us, you'll notice there's an echo uh, where in the building. Um, for I don't know if it was by design or not, but the acoustics of the sanctuary are amazing. In fact, in 1995, when the Christian scientists were on their way out, they were trying to sell the building, and there was a buyer in 95 who bought the building next door, which is currently a funeral home, because he wanted to open up a music school. He bought the building, our building, specifically because of the acoustics. It fell through, at least that's what I was told, but um, it's... Uh, definitely been on people's radar for those who are musically inclined. Okay. Uh, point of information before we end the show, the hair braid that I was talking about for the Chinese, it's pronounced a Q, mm-hmm. and it was done by the Ming Dynasty to oppress the common person, and then it was became somehow a symbol of feudalism. And then I did know that in the 19th century when the Sun Yat-sen's revolution, they mm. cut the braid because it was a symbol of feudalism. Mm. I want to get that out to make sure on the right train to listeners that we didn't want to offend. We would like to thank our 513th guest, M- Emily Van Warderheisen, co-director of the collections of Rock Island at Carpalist Manuscript Museum, who talked to us about the history of the Chinese. History Bus for today's show were Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights at K, on KALA Radio or on the web at tunein.com. If you're looking for older programs, you can find them at soundcloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.